There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the most highly anticipated film of the year, if not the decade. Oppenheimer, an epic thriller that delves deep into the psyche of a singular American mind, the mind of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. The film is directed by no one less than legendary director Christopher Nolan, and it stars Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Josh Hartnett, Casey Affleck, Remy Malik, and Kenneth Branagh, to name but a few. It's based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare, and never one to disappoint, I sat down with the author of American Prometheus, Kai Bird, to discuss the rise and fall of Oppenheimer. We also talk about the decades of research that went into the book, and of course, we go into detail about what the film is like and what it was like working with Christopher Nolan. I know you're going to love this one, so remember, you can access all of our episodes one day early and completely ad free by subscribing to History Hit via the link in the show notes. But now, here is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Kai Bird, on Oppenheimer. Hi Kai, welcome to Warfare, and congratulations on having your Pulitzer Prize-winning book, American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, turned into a major film by no one less than Christopher Nolan. Now, Christopher is famously passionate about the history of the Second World War. What was it like being a historian, working with someone that has such a passion for this topic? Well, I'm very fortunate that Nolan has resurrected this book, which after all came out in 2005 and won the Pulitzer a year later. But he apparently was given the book in early 21 and read it and fell in love with it. And then I think he spent the spring and summer of 21 writing a screenplay based on the book. Then I got a phone call in September of 21 saying that Nolan wanted to talk to me. And that was the first I knew that he had become involved. Anyway, I had several meetings with him and eventually he shared with me the screenplay that he had written. And I think it's brilliant. And it's a brilliant reflection of the book that Marty Sherwin and I spent a total of 25 years working on. Wow, 25 years. Well, tell us a little bit about your research that goes into the book. It's great to hear, first of all, that you see the film as being a, a true representation of the history and the work. And I've, I've spoken with historians that have worked with Christopher Nolan before, and they've said the same thing, especially when it comes down to films like Dunkirk and now Oppenheimer. So when it comes to your history that you and Marty put together, where did you look to try and find the truth behind Oppenheimer, a, a man who has so many books written about him, but also so many myths that surround him? Yeah, he's a very complicated character, charismatic, but complicated. And Marty, you know, started the research on the book in 1980 and signed a contract that year with Knopf. 
he began interviewing people who were still alive, students and colleagues of Oppenheimer's at Berkeley or from Los Alamos during the war years. He did over 150 interviews of people who had known Oppenheimer. And then he also went into the archives, Oppenheimer's own papers at the Library of Congress, which amount to hundreds of boxes. He got the FBI to release a declassified version of their file on Oppenheimer, which ran to 8,000 pages. And he went into archives abroad in London at British Records Office and Denmark, the Niels Bohr Institute. He did exhaustive research, so much so that he actually spent 20 years doing the research. He got biographer's disease, which is when (laughs) you can't stop researching and you can't start to write because you think there's always one more archive or one more interview that is necessary. And finally, he came to me in the year 2000 and asked me to join him on the project. And he said, Marty was very funny. He he said, if I didn't join him, his gravestone was going to read, he took it with him. (laughs) And it turned into a terrific collaboration. We managed to put together what I think is a classic tale of the beginning of the atomic age and a deeply intimate biography of this fascinating character, Robert Oppenheimer. Well, take us back into Oppenheimer's own life and history. Where was he born? What propelled his interest in physics? Well, he he was born in New York City. He grew up in rather privileged circumstances on the Upper West Side in New York. Large 10-room apartment, maid, a cook, chauffeur. He had a sailboat that he sailed on Long Island Sound. He went to a private school. And he was clearly, you know, a bright, intelligent young boy, but kind of socially awkward, nerdy, and had what some call a prolonged adolescence. (laughs) Went to Harvard, but finished in three years and, you know, just did study, study, study and had no socialization. So was that mark of a young genius there when he was growing up? Was it noted by his teachers and his parents? I mean, it must have been. You don't just get into Harvard, do you? Right. Well, yeah, his teachers noted that he already, even before Harvard, he displayed an interest in science at the age of 12. He had a huge rock collection. He was interested in geology. and He had a chemistry teacher who stimulated his interest in that subject. He studied chemistry at Harvard, but also physics. And, and then he went off to Cambridge, England to study experimental physics. And actually, for the first time in his life, he faced failure. He was just physically very awkward in the laboratory and broke things all the time. And this led to sort of an emotional crisis of some sort. And But he overcame it and transferred to a German university where he studied theoretical physics. And that's where he discovered and fell in love with quantum physics and that he wrote his thesis in a year and was off. You see, that's fascinating. It was um, Gothenburg, wasn't it, that he went and studied? So it was there that he got his passion, his interest in theoretical physics, the kind of work that would propel him and move him forward to become the manager, the lead of the Manhattan Project. It's, It's almost strangely ironic to think that it was in Germany. 
the country that the United yes. States would be at war with just over a decade later that he would craft his passion. Was it his time in Europe that became, well, was it useful to his work later on in, in trying to judge how far the Germans had got in their attempts at the atomic bomb? Oh, yeah. Well, he studied under the famous German physicist Max Born, but he also attended lectures by Heisenberg, the famous uncertainty principle physicist in Germany. And, and then he, you know, he comes back to America in 1926-27 and lands at Berkeley and decides he wants to be in California and he builds up the physics department there. But by the 1930s, you know, he could see the rise of fascism and he feared it and he understood that German physicists like Heisenberg were very prominent and just as intelligent and aware of the, of the physics behind a possible weapon of mass destruction as he was. And this is actually what gave him his motivation to work on the bomb project, was that he feared that the Germans were 18 months ahead in the race to produce this and the disastrous results if Hitler were to get this weapon and probably would be able to use it to win the war. But a major boon for the United States was the fact that so many of the scientists that had been working on this in Europe had come to find safety in America. So you had your Einsteins, of course, but you did have Niels Bohr as well, who was over on a, on a research trip and uh, just somehow managed to stick around in New York long enough to help the US with their efforts as well. Yeah, actually, Niels Bohr arrived in Los Alamos on the last day of 1943. He had known the young... Oppenheimer when he was younger. And his first question to Oppenheimer on that day was, Robert, is it big enough? Is the gadget going to be big enough to end all war? Wow. That was actually part of the way that they were thinking about this weapon, the rationalization for doing it. They not only wanted to beat the Germans to building this thing because they feared German, the Germans could use it to win the war, but they also thought that it might be so horrible a weapon that it would impress upon humanity that we could never fight another global war, total war like World War II, that it would end those kinds of mass conflicts. You can see the ambition behind that, but I, I, it's almost, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, we know this, but you look back at Alfred Nobel and his work on dynamite, he thought the same thing. If I invent this weapon that's so destructive, then you will not have wars. No one in their right mind could possibly want to cause such damage and destruction. But uh, that's not how the human mind is wired. No, it's the fact that Oppenheimer was persuaded by this argument by Niels Bohr may be evidence of a certain political naivete. <laughs> <laughs> Well, put all of this together then, because you've painted us a picture of a man who's relatively socially awkward, someone who is, is quite literally um, smashing up the, the laboratory through his clumsiness, and doesn't perhaps have the interpersonal skills you'd imagine for managing the Manhattan Project. Now, this is a project that at its peak has, I think, 130,000 workers and a budget that balloons to being $2.2 billion. So why on earth does General Leslie Groves choose Oppenheimer to lead this? Well, that's a good question. It was peculiar to land on this 38-year-old 
quantum physics physicist who had administered nothing more than a few graduate students in, in Berkeley. You know, he had no administrative experience to speak of. But I think Groves could see in Oppenheimer when he interviewed him in late 1942 that this was a young man who was extremely ambitious, very bright. And unlike some of the scientists he had interviewed, Oppenheimer was a polymath. He, you know, was not only interested in quantum physics, but he loved English literature and the novels of Ernest Hemingway, and he wrote poetry himself. He had an interest in, at one point in the 30s, in the Hindu scriptures, and so he studied Sanskrit so that he could read the Gita and the original. You know, this is a man who was extremely articulate, and I think he was the first physicist that Groves had run into who could talk to him in plain English about what was necessary to put together a bomb project. And he also had a brilliant idea that appealed to Groves, who was very concerned about security, that the project not get out into the newspapers and that people understand that they're building this weapon of mass destruction. So Oppenheimer proposed, instead of scattering the effort to build the, the gadget across laboratories and universities all over the country, he suggested that what you needed to do is bring, initially he thought it was just necessary, uh, several hundred scientists and put them in one location in the middle of nowhere and surround them with a barbed wire fence so you have absolute security. But inside, these scientists could talk and argue amongst themselves on the way forward. And this vision, this idea appealed to Groves. And then Oppenheimer, who had once told his younger brother, Frank, that his two passions in life were physics and New Mexico, and he wanted to find a way to combine the two. Well, he proposed to Groves that he should look at the Los Alamos Boys School in the midst of the New Mexico wilderness up at 6,000, 7,000 feet. And they indeed visited this Spartan place in the middle of nowhere, Los Alamos, and landed on that as a spot for the secret city. You know, within a year, it was surrounded by barbed wire and thousands of scientists were working inside. And Oppenheimer turned out to be, he transformed himself. He had this ability to transform himself repeatedly. He turned out to be a brilliant administrator. He was charismatic. He would typically, his style was to come into the room and sort of stand at the back of the room and let the scientists, the chemists, to argue with the physicists and other engineers. And, and then at just the precisely the right moment, he would step forward and synthesize what everyone was saying and suggest that these are the next two or three steps forward. And everyone would see that he was exactly right. And, you know, they trusted his judgment and he was allowing people to argue amongst themselves, to percolate. He wasn't dictating, and yet he would repeatedly step forward just at the right moment to tell people in which direction should they, they should now pour their energies. Yeah, he was greatly admired by these very strong-minded men with big egos. Mm -hmm. 
Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. fascinating to think that it was Oppenheimer's early passion for rocks and for deserts and for landscapes that then <laughs> lands him into New Mexico where they place this gigantic project. But also it's those, those skills of being almost a, a polymath and his life experience of having these networks around the world that put him into the right place at the right time to draw the right people together and then to be a perfect project manager to be able to computate that in his mind with his own knowledge as well because you have to have that in-depth knowledge of the theoretical physics behind it to then chart the right path forward it's a serendipity it's a, it's a kismet isn't it that he was able to be chosen by groves and to be in the right place at the right time yep absolutely so when it comes down to the site itself and its portrayal in the film was it chosen to build a gigantic set out into the desert? Were you able to visit the film site while you were there? I was invited to, to be on the film set in Los Alamos itself. But Los Alamos today is sort of a, it looks like a sort of 1950s suburban village. <laughs> it doesn't at all look like the Los Alamos of the 19, early 1940s. There were a few buildings that date back to the early 40s, including Oppenheimer's own little cottage right there in the middle of Los Alamos near the pond. And they did film in the, that house. Oh, wow. And recreated what it looked like inside from old pictures. And they filmed in a couple of other older buildings there. But they actually, Nolan actually had to construct a whole new site 20 miles down the road near Los Alamos, but in the middle of the desert. And he created a, you know, a street as it would have looked like in the 1940s. And how accurate did you find that? Do you think that they did a good job in recreating that environment? I mean, it must be a good sign that they built it so nearby as well. Yeah, no, it was it was very accurate. He also filmed in Princeton at the Institute for Advanced Study and uh, used Einstein's own office as one of the venues. Oppenheimer, from 1947 until Einstein died in 1955, he was sort of, so to speak, Einstein's boss. <laughs> he was the director of the Institute, and Einstein was a lifelong fellow. But they were friends and, you know, colleagues and admired each other and saw each other, I think, on a daily basis. But they also filmed in Berkeley, which, again, is, you know, a 
where Abi lived himself for many years in the 20s and 30s. Well, take us into, I guess, the peak moment in the film, and this would be at that moment of, of the Trinity Tests, July 16th, 1945, when the first nuclear detonation takes place. And you mentioned that Oppenheimer is a, a reader of the, the Bhagavad Gita, and he states these immortal words of, I become death, the destroyer of worlds. To what extent does this epitomise Oppenheimer's view of what he had achieved? Does it show a fear, a sense of impending doom? Or, like you say, is it more a relief that he's done what Niels Bohr suggested, to create a, a weapon that is just so incredibly destructive that it may well end war? Well, it actually shows that Oppenheimer has a sort of theatrical sense well, yeah, I guess you have to have a theatrical sense to say that, yeah. You know, in truth, actually, we think if you look at the book, when the Trinity explosion goes off, Oppenheimer, from all accounts, he turns to his younger brother, Frank, and says it worked. Ah, a little less theatrical. <laughs> but then the next day or a few days later, there's a New York Times reporter who's been assigned to write an account of what has happened that will be published after the bomb is used on Hiroshima. And he asks Oppenheimer, well, sir, what went through your mind when you saw the Trinity? And then he uses, he, he used ah. that quote. <laughs> and this is, you know, classic Oppenheimer. He was an actually very quiet, almost reclusive, shy person in some respects. And yet he had the ability to, get up on the stage and when called for to perform. And he had a, a theatrical sense to him and uh, he did this repeatedly anyway. So you're right, that quote is going to define him forever. I am death destroyer of worlds. It truly is. And it's from that moment that it could be argued the relationship of those working around at the Manhattan Project starts to deteriorate in some ways, because, of course, you have the, the Stillard petition after this, and you have 70 signatures of scientists that are working on the project that are, are stating to President Truman at this point in time, who has, who has taken charge after the death of Roosevelt and is learning about the, the bomb himself, that they shouldn't launch this weapon. But this isn't a petition that's signed by Oppenheimer. Is it at this point that you start to have the fractures in the working relationship at Los Alamos and people start to turn against Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer. Well, yeah, no, Oppie never signed the Zillard petition that was circulating in the summer of 45. But at that point, he was, you know, working very hard on just trying to get the Trinity test to happen and working under very arduous deadlines. But people did not turn against Oppenheimer so much as Oppenheimer began to voice, you know, his ambivalence about what had happened. But this only happened after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, when he goes right. back to Washington and he learns from Henry Stimson, the war secretary, you know, just how close the Japanese had been to surrendering. And he learns more about the, you know, what actually happened on the ground in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, he was fully aware that it was going to be dropped on, a, on the center of a city or two and that most of the victims would be civilians. But, well, I'll tell you this story that's in from the book that I like because it illustrates Oppenheimer's mind and 
sensibility. Soon after the Trinity test in July of 45, he's walking to work one day with his secretary at the time, Ann Wilson. And I actually tracked down Ann Wilson. She was still alive in 2003. And I interviewed her in Georgetown. And she told me the following story. She says, you know, we were walking to work and suddenly I hear Robert, as she called him, muttering under his breath, those poor little people, those poor little people. And she stops him and says, Robert, what are you talking about? And he says, well, you know, we've now tested the Trinity gadget and it works and it's now going to be used on a Japanese city. And they're going to be mostly civilians who are going to be the victims, those poor little people. So when I related this story back to Marty Sherwin, he pointed out that from the chronology, this had to be the same week that Oppenheimer was briefing the bombardiers who are going to be on the airplanes and he was instructing them exactly how, at what altitude they should. So he was briefing Tibbets and all of those in the Enola Gay. Well, I don't know if it was Tibbets, but it was the team, yeah. bombardiers, yeah. And uh, he was instructing them at what altitude it should be detonated to have the most maximum destructive power, and that it should be dropped on the center of the city, not not on the periphery because it needed a big target. So this is a very complicated man who's capable of, you know, feeling deep, troubling human empathy for the thousands of victims. And yet he was also carrying out his responsibilities as the director of this project to give the bomb to President Truman. But it's back to this point, isn't it, Kai, that if you are motivated by the idea that you have to cause the the most destruction possible to make sure this can never happen again, then you want to make sure that it is dropped accurately and on the exact centre of the city so that it has the maximum damage. And, you know, Killian Murphy portrays the role of Oppenheimer so brilliantly in my eyes. And he says these lines in the film, our work here will ensure a peace that mankind has never seen. And I don't know if that is words that Oppenheimer said directly but does that show why his drive post-war was to creating this idea of of one world or none the idea that after the second world war in order to ensure that peace you had to take the power of the atomic bomb and put it into the hands of an international organization that control it so that you could stop that proliferation globally right that was Oppenheimer's hope that we could create an international control mechanism to prevent an arms race. And of course, this was why he was brought down in 1954, because he was making this argument so vociferously, and he was coming out against the building of the super, the hydrogen. And this uh, threatened the defense budgets of the Air Force and the Army and the Navy here in America, who were trying to build more such weapons. And here is the father of the atomic bomb undermining their their arguments. So this is the, the, the actually really fascinating thing that happens to Oppenheimer after 1945, you know, when he celebrated as a America's greatest scientist and put on the cover of Time and Life magazine. But then nine years later, he's brought down in this security hearing in 1954, and it turns into a kangaroo court, and he's 
eventually publicly humiliated and he becomes a pariah. So this is the, you know, he becomes the chief victim of the, the whole McCarthy era and the witch hunts of that time. And this what is what makes his story so fascinating. And it's a lesson to, you know, scientists everywhere. Beware of speaking out as a public intellectual on political or policy issues. Keep to your narrow field in science. And this explains, you know, a lot about the problems that we face today, where we're in a society drenched in technology and science, but our public, does, you know, gives no respect to scientists. And there's a suspicion of expertise. We could see this during the recent pandemic. So this is another, you know, lesson of the book and the film, I think, will convey to, to people. And I hope they'll be, you know, it will stimulate a national conversation about not only the end of World War II and the dawning of the atomic age, but McCarthyism and the role of scientists in our society. Kai, thank you so much for your time. I was lucky enough to to spend a couple of days with Priscilla McMillan a few years ago before her passing and to talk about the ruin of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And I'm oh, so she was glad a great, she was she, a great yeah, historian. She, she really, really was. And it's so important that the film does tackle that issue. It doesn't end with him being this hero that is the, the father of the atomic bomb, but shows what happens to those scientists who do speak out. Kai, thank you so much for your time. Remind us again, what is the title of your book and when is the film out? The book is American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And it's the basis for the inspiration for Christopher Nolan's film Oppenheimer, which will be out July 21st everywhere. Kai, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.